Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. Revolution 250 is a consortium of about 70 organizations in and around Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the anniversaries of American independence. And I am Bob Allison, the chair of Revolution 250's advisory group, and I'm really delighted today to have with us three guests representing the town of Marblehead, which plays a huge role in the revolution. Uh, Lauren McCormick is the executive director of the Marblehead Museum. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we also have two guests from the Glover's Marblehead Regiment, Seamus Daly, who is the captain, and Larry Sands, who is a lieutenant. Welcome, Seamus, and welcome, Larry. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Great to have you with us. So Lauren, what can you tell us about the Marblehead Museum? So the Marblehead Museum was founded in 1898 as the Marblehead Historical Society um, and has been collecting ever since then. We now have over 60,000 artifacts and archival items in our collection. We have three sites in town and our, our, the jewel in our collection is the Jeremiah Lee Mansion, which was finished in 1768. So a couple of years ago, we celebrated its 250th anniversary. Now, who was Jeremiah Lee? Well, I think it's safe to say that outside of Marblehead, hardly anybody has heard of Jeremiah Lee. And perhaps if it wasn't for the fact that that his mansion has survived, that his mansion house has survived for 250 years. Maybe nobody in town would have heard of him, but he actually has a, has a great story in relation to, to, the lead, to the lead up to the revolution. He wasn't born in Marblehead. He was actually born in 1721 in Manchester, but he comes to Marblehead as a young man in 1743 with his father. And they're very quickly become enmeshed and integral to the the trade, the mer mercantile trade that's going on. So what I mean by that is the, the, they own ships that go to the Grand Banks and they fish, bring back the cod, cure the cod, and then send it over to the West Indies where the lesser quality fish is sold to the plantation owners to feed enslaved people. And then the better quality fish is sold to European countries, Spain, Portugal, and, and such. And in exchange, of course, they're purchasing goods they're bringing back and selling in in Marblehead and throughout the, the, the colonies. And they become very wealthy. He, his father, the whole codfish aristocracy, a lot of whom are based in Marblehead, become extremely wealthy. Were they wealthy. born in, Man which Manchester were they from? Manchester, Massachusetts, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> and not, not England. <laughs> not England or New Hampshire. Good. No, no, no New Hampshire. So, so codfish is really what makes Marblehead an important place. Absolutely. I mean, it. it everybody in some way shape or form practically is involved whether they're the fishermen whether they're the merchants or the coopers or the sail makers it is just essential to the economy of the town so you can imagine um, when some of the the royal decrees come down and the taxes and the and which leads to non-importation agreements and such that they, they really start to hurt and when the merchants hurt like jeremiah lee everybody else is hurting as well and through, throughout throughout the lead up to the war, he's taking part in in town government as well. Mm -hmm. So, is he involved then in the committees of correspondence, Sons of Liberty, any organizations like that? Absolutely. So he in 1773, he and fellow Marbleheaders, some of whom you've heard of, some of whom you haven't, like Elbridge Gerry, 
the Glover brothers, Jonathan and John, um, take part in what's called the Tuesday Evening Club. And this kind of morphs into, for all intents and purposes, the town's committee of correspondence. And so he is, he is really involved in that. He's actually elected or chosen to go and represent the town in the first um, Continental Congress, but he declines. Uh, for, we're not sure exactly why, but he does decline. But instead he goes to the Ipswich Convention uh, in 1774, where they produce the Essex Resolves, among other things. And he's part of the first provincial Congress where he is on the Committee of Supplies. And this is where all of those um, relationships that he's developed, especially those in Europe, um, come in really handy for him. Because he is, he is taking advantage of those relationships, particularly with a gentleman um, or a company by the name of uh, Gardoki, Joseph Gardoki, who is in Bilbao. Um, he is using that relationship to, to try to get arms and ammunition back into the colonies. And we know this because there is a letter or a couple of letters that exist that you can actually see if you look at the naval documents of the American Revolution publication. You can find where he is literally writing, um, he's written to them. We don't have his letter, but we have the letter back from Gardoki, who's talking about they will do their best to get to supply him with the arms, the ammunition. They're not going to be able to supply him with powder because uh, everything that's produced in Spain, uh, powder-wise, is kept in Spain. But we know from these letters that he is integral to that. And there's also an interesting source. Uh, in 1835, Lemuel Shattuck publishes a history of the town of Concord. And he very specifically cites Lee and Lee's um, work to supply Concord with um, barrels and hogsheads of powder other supplies like tents, poles, axes, hatchets. So he's, he's definitely supplying the very arms and ammunition that the British troops are marching out of Boston and to Concord on the night of April 18, 1775 in search of. Wow, wow. So this is great, They're very interesting. And so the Lee Mansion is now, it will, we hope it'll be open again so people can go and visit and see yes. what's inside. Yes, absolutely. The The society purchased the mansion in 1909. And it's been open ever since. Even last year, we managed to open it a few days uh, for a limited capacity. So starting June 1st, we will be open again. You can tour the mansion. Um, it's, it's an amazing uh, specimen of Georgian architecture. The details, both inside and outside, are really fantastic. It has the original 1768 wallpaper uh, in, in multiple rooms that are hand-painted hand in England and sent to, to Lee for the building, never mind the, the carved mahogany details. It's really, it's a, it's a great place to come visit. So we hope people will do that this year. It really is, it really is. So thank you. So Seamus Daly is the captain of Glover's Marblehead Regiment. So John Glover is another of the legendary figures of Marblehead and someone who should probably be more widely known to the rest of us. Can you tell us a bit about what you read to him? Sure. Um, the Governor's Marblehead Regiment seeks to commemorate, celebrate the the, the, um, the deeds of the regiment, the 14th Continental itself, and we'll, we'll get into those later. But um, Glover is born in Salem in 1732. Um, upon the death of his father, his mother moves him to Salem at the age of four. Um, he becomes cordwainer and rump trader, gets married in 
1754 to a woman called Hannah Gale. And he becomes a member of the Committee of Correspondence. But um, with the segue uh, you know, from Lauren's presentation about Jeremiah Lee to John Glover is, is Glover becomes Colonel of the Marblehead Militia upon the death of Colonel Jeremiah Lee in May of 1775. And the timing is just about perfect because at that point, um, soon after, um, Glover's men march to Cambridge and become part of the um, besieging of Boston. And Washington appoints Glover's as his honor guard um, for some strange reason. Primarily, probably we speculated that it's to do with you know onboard ship discipline and the ability of sailors to follow orders without creating a town meeting. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. the, 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 the merit of the order. Um, so that that's essentially, you know, how Glover gets to take over the take over the regiment. But I think the big thing, you know, we, we, we like to talk about in both in Marblehead and outside is what we would call the three saves of seventeen seventy six. Yes. And can either you or Larry tell us about the three saves of seventeen seventy six? I'll hand this over to Larry for a bit. Okay. So Larry Sands is a is a lieutenant, in, and Larry has also been involved in the restoration of Fort Sewell, which is one of the really terrific historical sites in New England. So thanks, Larry, and you'll tell us about the three saves of 1776, and I hope we'll come back to Fort Sewell. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, so clearly, Glover's regiment had an important role in Washington's army. So initially in Cambridge, we were his honor guard. We subsequently marched with the army to uh, Long Island. And the first save being when Washington's army was badly outnumbered by the British, uh, kind of with our backs up against uh, the, the river, um, we were able to evacuate Washington's army uh, under the cover of darkness. So they fired up the, the campfires at the front and in the back, quickly uh, evacuated Washington's troops, which numbered about 9,000 or so at that point uh, against a significantly superior British force. And in one night and in a bit of a beneficial fog the next morning, we were able to um, take Washington's army across the river and allow them to escape to fight another day. It's really one of the great stories of the revolution, when this great episode of Washington being on the verge of having the army wiped out in Brooklyn and Glover's men row him across the East River. Kind of, kind of Glover's claim to fame is anytime Washington had anything that needed to be done that involved boats. Uh, yes. It was Glover and his Marblehead sailors and fishermen that, that accomplished that feat. So once the army was evacuated to Brooklyn, um, General Washington left Glover and his men behind to fight uh, delaying tactics to slow the, the chasing British army so that the rest of Washington's army could escape. Uh, yeah. So in the Battle of Pelham or Pell's Point, uh, it was Glover and his men that delayed the British for a day, allowing the rest of Washington's army to safely uh, escape the superior forces. So that's kind of the second save of the army. 
I think that Larry is not actually Seamus. I think it's safe to say that um, it was 750 men holding off 4,000 for the best part mm -hmm. of the day. I thought it was a very significant yes. mismatch militarily, but Glover's tactics of uh, using the terrain, particularly with respect to stone walls and using them as cover and um, mm -hmm. doing, doing a staged retreat um, was, was, was very significant. Um, despite mm -hmm. the fact that Glover didn't have a lot of confidence in himself as a, as, as a brigade commander at that point, but that's essentially what he had. He, he, he did brigade right. his command at that point. Mm. Well. And then the final point of 76 was toward the end of the year, um, you know, General Washington's troops were going home. Enlistments were up at the end of 76, and the likelihood, given the fact that there were not significant victories uh, on behalf of the colonists, the likelihood that troops would come back in the spring uh, was kind of waning. So Washington had a Hail Mary pass that he tried to uh, complete at the end of the year to uh, provide some sort of significant victory for his troops. And again, he relied on Glover. Um, he, the plan was to attack the Hessian garrison at Trenton. Uh, mm -hmm. Washington divided his army into three parts, uh, all to, to uh, uh, meet uh, at the town of Trenton. Uh, the only one of the three that managed to cross the Delaware River was that uh, under the control of Glover and his men. So uh, the regiment rode about 2,400 troops, horses, cannons across the ice-choked Delaware River at night, uh, and then marched with the troops to Trenton, about a nine-mile march, attacked the Hessian garrison, and Glover's regiment had the role of protecting the bridge across the Assunpink Creek to keep the, the uh, Hessians from escaping. Um, they then marched the nine miles back to the crossing point, rode Washington, his men, the horses, the cannons, 900 prisoners, plus all the captured stores back across the river. So in about a 36-hour period, uh, Glover and his men accomplished what many thought wasn't possible. And I think that victory in Trenton clearly changed the tide of the war in terms of people's enthusiasm to continue the fight. And I think a lot of Washington's troops came back in the spring following that victory, that significant victory in Trenton. So that was the third save uh, uh, that the regiment provided. Yeah, that's remarkable. Now we've talked a lot about rowing <laughs> and you, you mentioned though that uh, Glover's first wife's name was Hannah. And I understand there's also a ship called the Hannah, which is important in the story. Yes. So, so the, the Hannah gives rise to one of our local controversies in Marblehead and Beverly. Um, the Hannah, named after his daughter, not after his wife. Okay. Um, but the name is significant, obviously. Um, and it was commissioned as a warship in, in September of 1775. The Hannah had a very short life as a commissioned warship. It was decommissioned, I think it was, in November. But it was essentially the first ship of the American Navy. And it's given rise to this controversy of was the was was the Navy um, founded in Marblehead or, or Beverly? And you know, it, it, it's a storm in a teacup 
argument. There are other places that lay claim to the founding of the U.S. Navy, chief among which is Philadelphia. But but essentially, the home port of the Hannah was Beverly. Um, it had a short career. I think it did take the HMS Lively uh, at one point out of Gloucester, but the skipper and the crew were from Marblehead, and its home port was was Beverly. So it's a minor local controversy here, but definitely. Um, Dubber ships were part of that first squadron mm -hmm. of, of, of uh, ships that were, um, you know, formed part of the Continental Navy. Mm -hmm. um, and the US Navy does claim that October 13th was the day of its official establishment. And at that point, it was only ships in, in this, in the Marblehead Beverly area, area that were part of the Navy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, uh, Lauren, as we've been talking, I'm thinking about this community of fishermen and uh, merchant sailors. And, you know, Seamus was talking about these are also guys who are able to take orders when you're on a ship. And that gives kind of a distinctive character to this. And can you tell us a bit about Marblehead as a community and what makes it such an important piece of the revolutionary story? Well, I think Marblehead as a community still to this day, it's so much of it is based, it's such a historic town and it is so invested in its history. And to know that there were so many people who were intricately involved in, in the start of the revolution and the success of the American revolution. And then even afterwards in the development of the, the new United States government and such, it's something that even today, the town takes great pride in, and um, we we do see a lot of visitors to Marblehead because of our revolutionary history and the general historic flavor to the town. It's one of the the town has probably the most pre-revolution Revolutionary War era houses still in existence, and so when you walk through the streets of, of Marblehead, you can walk by some of the houses that were were there before and during the revolution. You can walk by the old townhouse where. Lee, among other people, spoke out against the Stamp Act uh, and other other royal edicts, and so it, it still has that flavor to it, that presence of the past. Great, thank you. And so our guests are Lauren McCormick, who is the executive director of the Marblehead Museum, and Seamus Daly, who is the captain of Glover's Marblehead Regiment, and Larry Sands, who is a lieutenant in the Mar Glover's Marblehead Regiment. And Larry, you've also been involved in rest restoring Fort Sewell, which is a terrific. Can you tell us a bit about Fort Sewell? Absolutely. Uh, Fort Sewell was uh, actually founded in 1644. So in 2019, we had our 375th anniversary. Uh, and given Marblehead's seafaring past, uh, the fort has been an important element of the town to protect the sailors and fishermen uh, back in the early days. Uh, and Fort Sewell was um, on active duty really through World War II. Uh, we had coast watchers assigned to Fort Sewell during that period. So the fort itself, uh, I've been part of the Fort Sewell Oversight Committee for 23 or four years or so. Um, we undertook uh, an extensive renovation of the fort uh, for a few reasons. One was historic preservation uh, of the site itself. Second was uh, some safety 
improvements for visitors of the site. Uh, and third, I think, was our educational miss mission to try to show visitors to the town the, the historical significance of the town of Marblehead. Now, Marblehead was one of the largest seaports in the colonies. Um, so hard to imagine a little bedroom community could be in the top 10 with places like New York and Philadelphia. Uh, but the codfish aristocracy, the fishing uh, schooners that came out of Marblehead, uh, it was a significant town uh, in its day. And the fact that over 500 Marblehead men and boys uh, went to serve in the Continental Army uh, was a significant contribution from a town our size. So Fort Sewell um, has a lot of history. Um, we undertook a public-private partnership. We raised, um, say, $900,000 or so uh, in private donations and grants. Uh, and then the town of Marblehead approved an override uh, and the combination of those funds has led us um, to almost complete the project at the fort. Our hope is that we'll be open for Memorial Day this year. Uh, and one of the interesting pieces, so in addition to a lot of structural work at the fort, we've also funded a Fort Ranger program. Uh, and the Fort Ranger program will allow us to open the fort in the summer and provide interpretation for visitors that come to the town. And that's one of the things that I've heard in my years in town. People tell me I've lived here 20, 30, 50 years and have never been inside Fort Sewell. Oh my goodness. We're anxious to be able to open the fort and allow people to get a real feel for what things were like through the history of the town. And it's a great place. It's up the street, of course, from my favorite restaurant, The Barnacle. And it's a <laughs> great thing to do is go to The Barnacle and then walk up to Fort Sewell and see what's there. Now, Lauren and I have the real luxury of being able to spend our working lives surrounded by history. And you, uh, Larry and Seamus, I both have real jobs. And so I'm really wondering, not about your real jobs, we can talk about those later, but what drew you into history as a thing you really wanted to do with uh, the passion and the time you dedicate to, to it? Um, I've always been a student of history, but you know, to make a very long story very, very short, my wife somehow finagled me into <laughs> the regiment. Um, and I really took to it. I, I, just, I, just, I just like, um, you know, um, reliving history but but i just you know i'm, I'm a student of history and you know i study mm -hmm. all sorts of different eras in history and they i find i i, I find that um, given my given my background right the different way in which the crown treated the rebels in north america versus what they did 20 years later in ireland i find that to be a very interesting contrast mm -hmm. and uh I, so, so, so I get a kick out of the fact that the colonists were able to throw off the yoke of of, of the crown. I, I can see that, and uh, and Seamus is too modest to tell us that he has a actually has a doctorate in engineering from the University College of Dublin, and uh, so so I thank you for being invested in this story too. Now, how about you, Larry? What drew you into this? Um, actually, I 
I moved into an old house. I grew up in Detroit, if you can imagine, which has some history going back to the early 1700s. Uh, but moved into a house that was built in 1753. A next door neighbor and I who moved in to the neighborhood at the same time were watching a Memorial Day parade in Marblehead and saw a small group of party reenactors. I think they were down to four people after the bicentennial. And we said, boy, this is really something that should continue. So we called and said, we're interested. And uh, they were very welcoming and helped us get outfitted and join the regiment. And uh, we both said, gee, there's got to be more than just marching in a few parades. And we found out that the regiment had cooking gear and tents and all sorts of things uh, for when the regiment was larger during the bicentennial. So we started uh, an annual encampment at Fort Sewell, which has now been going for 30 years or so. Uh, and through Seamus and a number of other folks in the regiment, we've been able to recruit lots of young families to join. Um, I joined when my son was three years old. He's now 33. Uh, so that gives me a sense of how long ago it was. Uh, but it's a great experience. Um, I think we all enjoy the educational part of it, uh, both educating ourselves and sharing that knowledge with other people. Um, so it's it's been a, a labor of love uh, for a long period of time. And it's the type of event that will take whatever time you can contribute to it. So if you want to do something every weekend, there is something that you can do every weekend. Most of us uh, try to balance, you know, uh, that, that contribution uh, to our real lives. Uh, but uh, it, it is a fun hobby. And we're always looking for new recruits. So, so the regiment itself was re, was formed at about the time of the bicentennial when there was great interest, and now we hope that um, this will bring. Now, one of the really special things that you do is an annual marking of John Glover's gravesite and the anniversary of his um, death in seventeen ninety seven. Can you tell us a bit about this event, which happens in the dead of winter and it's usually at night? Sure. Yes, um, it's one of our signature events during the year. Um, we, we also, in pre-pandemic times, coincided with the, uh, with, with the regiment's annual dinner. But mm. we essentially march from the old townhouse, which Lauren has already mentioned. We march under drums down Washington Street to Burial Hill, and then we deliver an oration um, to General Glover, render honours, and then march back again. And townspeople take part in the march. They they will either march with us with with lanterns, or they will they will come out on the side of the street and watch us as, as we march by. So it's a very poignant event, and I think it's 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 loved by townspeople. I know townspeople, excuse me, I know townspeople that love to turn out for it. And obviously, as members ourselves, we we love to take part in it because of the symbolism of it. And uh, General Glover passed away on January 30th of, of 1797. So typically it's the Saturday closest to January 30th that we've taken to doing this event. So we hope we'll be back uh, in 2022. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. And what about encampments? Will you be doing an encampment this summer? Um, we will not. We may 
turnout at Fort Sewell for short events. We're still we're still very leery of large gatherings, and yeah. we obviously need the advice of the town of Marblehead, who owns who is responsible for Fort Sewell. But probably in 2022, Larry, do you want to say about the significance of 2022 for the fort? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, our, so the the project that we've done at the fort, our target date for completion was 2022. That marks the 100th anniversary of when Fort Sewell was returned to the town of Marblehead by the federal government. Um, so we're planning a celebration uh, in spring, probably May of 2022, uh, to officially reopen the fort. Uh, again, our plan is to have a soft opening starting this May so people will be able to get back to the fort. Uh, but all of the final touches will be in place. A new cannon um, that we've ordered that will be delivered in time for that, along with the um, the Fort Ranger program unveiling and a plaque commemorating all the generous donations from the public, um, all of which are planned for the spring of 2022. So that's a significant date for us. Great, thank you. Now, Lauren, you must be for you are fortunate to be in a town that really cares about history, but I know there is more to do being in charge of an historical society than simply opening the door and expecting people to come. So what kinds of things are you, do you have you done to help build this community? Well, you know, and especially this, this last year, it's been difficult, but um, like many muse museums and historical societies, we've shifted a lot um, in the last few years. We are focusing on the anniversaries such as Reb 250 for us with the Lee Mansion. We just celebrated it, its 250th a couple of years ago. And we're also, you know, like a lot of other people, we are really looking at telling the full story of the town to really concentrate not only on some of the really well-told and oft-told stories, but some of the more hidden or more opaque stories. So we are doing a lot more research on black indigenous and people of color. And there were, were a number of amazing people who lived in town over the years who contributed so much to town. So for, for me and for us, it's a lot about being relevant to, to what is going on in the world, to helping people understand where we are today by looking at the past. Um, so reaching out to people with new information and encouraging people to come along on the journey with us by doing, doing research with us, uh, examining our artifacts that we have, walking through the, the, the halls of the Lee Mansion, maybe thinking about it in a different way, not only from the, the point of view of Lee and his wife and his children, but of the people who worked there and were enslaved there and, and just sort of um, trying to be as well-rounded and relevant as possible in all things that we do. Great, thank you. Well, thank you all. We've been delighted this morning to have with us um, Lauren McCormick, who's the executive director of the Marblehead Museum. And I should also say that Lauren has her bachelor's degree in history as well as in theater arts and Near Eastern and Judaic studies from Brandeis. And then she got a master's at Brandeis in American history, as well as a master's from BU in New England and American studies. And before coming to Marblehead for about five years, she worked at the USS Constitution Museum where she was one of the co-authors of their Men of Iron, a study of the sailors at the, during the War of 1812. So it was really an accomplished museum professional. And Larry Sands and Seamus Daly from the um, 
Glover's Marblehead Regiment. It's uh, really fascinating to talk to folks from Marblehead, which has a great story to tell and lots of great stories to tell, as Lauren suggested. And I'm really delighted that the three of you are continuing to tell the stories and help shape Marblehead's history. So thank you very much for joining us this morning, Lauren and Larry and Seamus. Thank you. Well, Thanks for having us. We'll look forward.